0: I think when we don't have the vertical line wave like Omicron, I think it is very easy to imagine a situation in which, based on the science, as people like to say, we could start to treat this as an endemic disease. There's right. a separate question whether significant numbers of Americans are psychologically ready to do that, even if it is the rational thing to do.
1: Hello, and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of BDI. I'm really excited for my guest this week. His name is David Leonhardt. He is a senior writer at the New York Times. David has been at the Times for more than two decades. In that time, he has served as Washington Bureau Chief. He has worked for the opinion section, picked up a Pulitzer Prize as a columnist for the business section, and created the upshot. David now serves as author of the paper's incredibly influential morning newsletter, which is appropriately titled The Morning. The Morning goes out to 14 million readers each day and has earned buzz in part thanks to David's clear-eyed writing on the COVID pandemic, writing that often challenges the conventional wisdom of the pundit class as well as the New York Times' own readers. I called up David on Thursday to discuss the Omicron wave that's washing over New York and the rest of the country, media coverage of the COVID pandemic, misinformation from the right and the left, and his incredible career in journalism. David, uh, welcome to the interview. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. So I wanna dive right into it, if you don't mind. Your latest newsletter out this morning has some potentially good news. You write that the massive Omicron surge that we've seen over the last month is leveling off in parts of the Northeast, including New York. What does the data show right now for the Omicron wave?
0: I would say there are two sources of potential good news, or maybe even three. So first is, as you just noted, in a bunch of cities, New York, Chicago, you can start to see cases kind of cresting. You can also see it in some of the state data, New Jersey, Maryland, maybe Connecticut too. Um, it's, you know, you don't see rapid declines yet, but you can start to see it cresting. The increases have certainly slowed in some cities and states. Actually, we've had modest declines in the number of new cases. And and that's very different from where we were a few weeks ago in which, you know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners look at the COVID charts the same way you and I do. I mean, they looked like a brick wall a few weeks ago and not yeah, in and a out- good
1: out of control. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it just, it really looked like a vertical line. So leveling off is a big deal. So that's point one. Point two is, if you look at some other measures um, that often are leading indicators, they actually are falling more rapidly. So as uncomfortable as it may be to talk about, Boston measures its wastewater, what goes down in the toilet, for the amount of COVID virus in it. Um, and that's proven to be a pretty good measure um, in multiple places in the past. That—that that, The amount of COVID in the wastewater in Boston has fallen 40% since, since the peak in early January and if you just think about that for a minute th- it makes sense that that would lead the testing data because that's actually measuring each day how much covid is really in people's systems the amount of time it takes to go get tested get the results get it logged that would lag a little bit hmm. and then um Consistent with that, there there are um, modelers out there, uh, epidemiologists who kind of try to analyze all this. And one of one of the influential ones out there um, at the University of Washington said they think that Omicron probably peaked in this country last week, even if the numbers don't show it. And then the third one, just very quickly, is other countries where Omicron arrived first, like South Africa, saw a very sharp but short increase, and South Africa is now down seventy percent from its peak.
1: Yeah, you wrote in another piece a few weeks ago that Omicron is also considerably milder than previous variants. And one line I think that stuck out uh, that a lot of people picked up on was that for a vaccinated 75-year-old, it poses roughly the same risk of death as getting the flu. Does that assessment still hold today? Are we still seeing that Omicron is milder in the numbers today? I think it's
0: probably milder than the flu. So okay, wow. the the um, as we've gotten more evidence of that, I it, it the exact comparisons here are hard, but because you're often comparing different studies, but my reading of it is that um, for a vaccinated seventy five year old, the risks pre omicron were pretty similar to the flu, and they're now lower than the flu. Now, the biggest caveat there is not the precise question of whether it's about the same or lower, but not radically lower. The big caveat there is the flu's bad if you're 75, or can be really bad, right? I mean, you know, it it really can have, so some research out of Britain suggested pre-Omicron that the risk of death in a vaccinated 75-year-old without major other underlying health problems, I understand Every 75-year-old has some underlying health problems, but without major underlying health problems, was something like 1 in 220, if you got COVID. 1 in 220 is not a risk you want to be taking. It's just uncomfortably high. Now, it's a similar risk, it looks like, as the risk for a, of a 75-year-old person who gets the flu, um, uh, which is to say the flu is quite damaging. Of course, the flip side of that is we don't shut down society because of the flu.
1: Right, and that's a point that you've been you've been making in your newsletter is that you know the 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 flu is not something that's good, right? It's not good for for elderly people to get it, but we don't our risk assessment for the flu doesn't lead to you know lockdowns and other various restrictive measures. You know, we still get in cars every day. We still do a lot of behaviors that are risky, and I feel like what what people have been looking for throughout the pandemic is getting to the point where the pandemic becomes endemic, and we can see you know a way out of that. I mean, I think with the Omicron surge, it was so out of control that that's not what an endemic phase looks like, right? Yeah. When you have cases exploding and you have that that vertical line of cases, that's not what it, it looks like. But do you think we're getting close to that? Could this have been you know, one of the last waves of COVID that we're going to see that's going to be really, really damaging?
0: What's so hard about this is we feel like we've seen the last wave before, right? right? We didn't I expect mean, Omicron. We didn't expect Omicron um and we really didn't expect delta right i mean before delta Mm -hmm. it really looked like that if you were vaccinated this was sort of on a a one-way a one-way street toward uh the virus being endemic and obviously it wasn't so it's there's a lot of uncertainty um uh um but i think the basic answer to your question is yes i think we are closer to that point than where we were so the the Uh, The two things that stand in the way of that are the very short term, even if Omicron is peaking in Boston and in New York and in Chicago, um, it still uh, has a couple of weeks to come down from the peak at a time when many, many people are getting sick. In much of the country where Omicron arrived a little later, it isn't yet peaking. Mm. So so some places it's still going up. And um, hospitalizations often trail case trends by about a week. Deaths, trail case trends by about three weeks. So I think we're really looking, particularly among unvaccinated people, and a small share, but a meaningful number of vaccinated people who have underlying health issues. You know, eighty-five year olds. Um, a, a mild flu for an eighty-five year old can actually be fatal. Right? It's mm. it's mild in terms of how the vi- what the virus is doing to the body, but but the body is, is sufficiently weakened that it can be fatal, in which case it's not really mild, right? right? So so I think we really are in for a rough few weeks, particularly for the unvaccinated. And then there's also the caveat that we don't know what's going to happen. Maybe a new variant is going to come along that's actually worse. But what I would say is that isn't the most likely scenario if you look mm-hmm. at history, right? If you think about something like the 1918-1919 flu, we don't think of that as the 1918-1924 to 1924 flu right that the normal the normal pattern of viruses is not that they come in and you've essentially got many many years of of them morphing and changing and, and being a constant emergency and we're going to come out of omicron with a whole bunch of big advantages a lot more people are going to have immunity from having gotten omicron huge numbers of people have gotten vaccinated and so i think when we don't have the vertical line wave like omicron I think it is very easy to imagine a situation in which, based on the science, as people like to say, we could start to treat this as an endemic disease. There's a separate question whether significant numbers of Americans are psychologically ready to do that, even if it is the rational thing
1: to do. Right. And I do want to talk about behavior a little bit because... This might just be because I spend too much time on Twitter, which is like a swamp of insane opinions. But I feel like there's a big gulf between attitudes towards the virus now. You know, even when you're looking at heavily vaccinated areas, uh, I saw one journalist tweet uh, a couple of weeks ago with horror that they were pressured into going to a maskless lunch. And they said that they spent the next 10 days isolating at home with an N95 mask around their wife because they were so petrified of having contracted the virus. Meanwhile, people are packing bars, restaurants, clubs, night after night. A lot of people that are vaccinated are treating this like, you know, it's pretty much over. Do you think there's an appropriate level of concern we should have about the virus right now?
0: I think that there is that Omicron is different from if we get past the Omicron wave At a time Uh when hospitals are overwhelmed, when nurses and doctors um are just completely exhausted and they've been working so hard for so long i think i think this moment still calls for really kind of significant caution in different ways Mm -hmm. not everyone's going to behave the same way but you know wearing a mask in in most public settings for a few more weeks it's it's it is it has a cost masks have a cost but It's not enormous in most settings. And so to me, the idea of of kind of wearing a KN95 or N95 mask and being more cautious for the next couple of weeks, even if you're vaccinated, there's a good argument for that. I think once we get beyond that, it really is time to start asking ourselves, well, wait a second, what are we doing here? I mean, the the, the things to keep in mind are that you take on risk in your life, as you noted before, when you get in a car, when you get on a bike, when you go swimming, When you chew a piece of food, you take on risk, right? And so when you interact in the world, because you might get a virus other than COVID, but if you stop doing all those things, you would actually do substantially more harm to yourself. That's exactly what we've seen happen with kids, right? We have done enormous harm to kids by closing schools, harm in learning, harm in mental health, um, and not just closing them, but the fact that schools are so far from normal right now. And so I, I think that once we get through the omicron wave it is going to be very hard from a ration rationality based perspective from a science perspective to justify things like i'm not going to have lunch with other people Mm -hmm. um uh uh, i'm not gonna go into the office i'm not gonna have my kid go to school um, because covid will present at that point we think potentially substantially less risk than than you take on by doing all kinds of other things what i find kind of fascinating and and frankly, a little befuddling is that there is a partisan pattern to these concerns. And I think that's right. part of what you see on Twitter, right? Mm. Um, conservatives, many of them have been irrationally blasé about the pandemic to the point of not getting vaccinated, which
1: is- As a political statement.
0: As a political statement. And it's right. genuinely held, like people may mm-hmm. genuinely- Feel that the vaccine presents more risk to them than COVID. They are wrong about that, but you know, uh, but it is a genuine feeling. And I think a lot of liberals have said, a "Look at those insane conservatives um, with their anti-science views." But there is a liberal version of that. It is not as bad as no, not taking the vaccine.
1: Not as dangerous. But, yeah.
0: But but it's dangerous. Right. And it's. Anti-science. If if liberals are essentially unable to re-engage with normal society, if they're unable to let their kids go to school and sit with their friends at lunch and talk with their friends at lunch without a mask for months and months and months or years after this, that's not believing the science, as people like to say. And it's deeply damaging. And so I think there's going to be a really interesting question about how can progressives get to the point of putting COVID in the proper perspective? I do think we see a divide now among people on the left half of the political spectrum. I think we see more Democrats who basically feel like, hey, you know what, I'm done. Mm -hmm. But we also see a lot of Democrats who are hyper-focused on small risks of COVID to the exclusion of larger risks and larger costs. And I don't completely understand why.
1: Your newsletter has gotten praise for being clear eyed about a lot of those questions. And I think I agree, like we're in a place like right now, we're being realistic about COVID, whether it's saying that Omicron is milder, talking about how kids should be in schools and there being actual costs to kids, not being in schools, talking about the risk rewards of masks that can all be controversial. I'm curious if you've ever gotten backlash from You know, either Times readers or Beyond for your writing and for your newsletter and being clear-eyed about those subjects.
0: I appreciate your description of it. Certainly, (laughs) I have certainly gotten backlash. Yeah, Um, but I mean, that doesn't bother me. Right. You really can't do meaningful journalism without getting ruffling a few feathers. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't. The fact that you're ruffling feathers doesn't mean you're right. And it's important to keep that in mind. It's important to kind of my view of criticism is that you should always engage with the argument and try to think about what you might be getting wrong or missing. I, I just did this year's version. It's never the most fun thing for me to write, but every year I write something where I look back on what I got wrong the previous mm-hmm. year. I think it's really important to 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 listen to outside criticism. But um, And I've definitely heard, um, I mean, I've heard from some conservatives who think I'm exaggerating um the uh, how good vaccines are I've written multiple times that vaccine mandates work Um, Mm. uh, They've worked uh, repeatedly over history, not just for COVID. They eliminate disease. Um, uh, They protect the people who don't want to get them. Most people react to a mandate by actually getting the vaccine. Only a tiny percentage would say quit a job or be fired from it. Conservatives don't like that. And I've definitely gotten uh, uh, a significant uh, or some amount of backlash from liberals who say, how can you say that there are kids who are hospitalized right now with COVID? Yeah, that's true. There are kids hospitalized with asthma and bronchitis and mental health problems. There are many, many, many more kids going to the hospital from vehicle crashes than from COVID. There are many more kids going to the hospital because of an injury in sports in a normal month when we actually let kids play sports than than from COVID. And so there has been some of that. I try to take it seriously. I I fell in love with journalism in high school. Um, I guess maybe I first fell in love with it um, by following sports scores as a kid in Boston. But but then I, as a as a practitioner rather than a reader, I, I fell in love with it in high school, working for my high school paper. And my math teacher, whom I adored as a math teacher, um, uh, would sometimes start uh, the Friday class by talking about all the things that she thought in the newspaper were wrong, um, uh, because we were you know we were firebrands who were criticizing the administration. And um, one of the great things about that experience is um, my math teacher when I was 16 was a a more important uh, figure in my life um, than almost anyone right now. And that that basically taught me, um, uh, I also had a lot of respect for her, so I I didn't dismiss it out of hand, but it also taught me that um, if you want to be a journalist, and I think it's we're phenomenally lucky to be journalists. If right. you want to be a journalist, you have to be comfortable with the idea um, that, that people are going to criticize you sometimes substantively, sometimes personally and nastily. And um, it's just, it's just part of the job.
1: I, I, enjoyed that piece where you look back on, on everything that, that you sort of got wrong and you, you describe you set it up by talking about pundit accountability. You know, which is this concept that you know pundits often get things wrong, particularly in the era of of COVID, and that it's a really worthwhile endeavor to go back and, and correct those. And one of the examples you used was about an epidemiologist who criticized Texas lifting its mask mandate and feared that it would have serious consequences. And it didn't end up, you know, leading to a surge in cases. And I think that and a lot of other things are prompting people to rethink masks a little bit. You wrote in that piece, I have the quote here, that masks do reduce its spread, but the effect can be too modest to be visible across an entire community or state. Where do you think we stand on the issue of, of masks, and have we, you know, is there any consensus about their effectiveness?
0: Masks help. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm persuaded by the evidence on on that. The Wall Street Journal had a really good chart looking at the how long you'd have to be in a given setting and likely to get COVID without a mask and then with different kinds of masks, like a cloth mask and an N95 right. mask. Masks really make a difference. You can look at the scientific literature on this. My colleagues at the Times have done this really nice graphic-based interactive feature. If, if you do, you know, how masks work, New York Times into Google, you can find it. Um, I had nothing to do with it, but it's really good. So masks work. But what I think is hard is um, uh, we've got a lot of Americans who reject the idea that masks work or or Don't care uh, and just aren't going to wear them. And then we also have a lot of Americans who exaggerate how important they are. And, you know, put it this way. It was before vaccines arrived, there was very different behavior around masks in red and blue America. I drove my mom across country um, so she could get vaccinated because she was staying with us, but she lives in Colorado. So her vaccine appointment came up in Colorado a few months before we could have gotten her vaccinated in Washington mm-hmm. D.C., where I live. And so I I drove her. I drove her halfway. My sister and I met in St. Louis, and we exchanged my mom. Nice. Um, and uh, so, if you think about driving from Washington D.C. to St. Louis you're almost totally going through red America. And this was a year ago, and I was stunned um, by how little mask wearing I saw. I was also upset by it. Um, Until the vaccine arrived, if you compared red and blue America, it was nearly impossible to find any difference in the amount of COVID spread. Now, I I still believe that masks work. I think the issue there is if without masks, Blue America would have had substantially more, more. Mm -hmm. right? Because Blue America has the international airports and stuff like that. But I don't know that. What I do know is that um, the scientific evidence strongly suggests masks work, but the effect is modest, not enormous. And it'll be interesting to see when we look back on this Omicron wave. This is going to be another really good example. Did Omicron spread much less? in places like New York and the suburbs of Boston and the suburbs of San Francisco, where people continue to wear masks than it did in Oklahoma City um, or Salt Lake City. So far, I I, I haven't yet seen that evidence that it has. And so it's really tricky because I think we often want to go to a kind of all or nothing conclusion. The conclusion with masks is they work. Their effect is modest. If you're trying to save lives, they're often worth it. But you should really weigh the cost benefit because, you know, particularly for kids in school, masks have costs, they impede communication, particularly kids with learning disabilities.
1: Yeah. And you, I listened to your your interview with Megan Kelly and you guys got into that, like the cost benefit uh, quite a bit, because she obviously loathes masks. Um, yes. She explained at length her, her problems with them. And I think those are like genuine concerns that she has with them. Like I, I wouldn't discount any of them. I think some of the concerns with masks are, are, are ridiculous. And, you know, the idea that they're sort of this like authority on your face, like it's Joe Biden, you know, caging your mouth is a little bit ridiculous. But like, some of the concerns are are well founded, like, I don't enjoy wearing a mask. I don't, you know, I don't want to be wearing one for the rest of my life. I'm glad that we're at a point now where we're having a discussion about the cost benefit um, of masks, because that that has been a conversation that I think at least on the left has been absent. There's this, yeah. been this assumption that they are an effective tool. And that if you question them, you're, you know, either right wing or you're anti science
0: my own personal behavior on masks is i've kind of upgraded so that most of the time now i wear a kn
1: 95 rather than just i'm i'm a kn95 guy too as well good design
0: they're a little less comfortable right they Mm. kind of chap your lips a little more so you know if there's a setting that that where i'm not interacting with a lot of people i'll sometimes switch to a cloth mask before delta arrived um i had stopped wearing masks in indoors, in stores, in other places. Um, uh, I've since gone back to it in part because the regulation in my community changed. But I'll, I'll tell you that when, with the Omicron wave subsides and um, the regulations come off as they should when cases change, I'm at the point in terms of my personal safety where when we're not in a massive spike, I feel no need to wear a mask. Um, in any setting, barring one where I have some reason to believe that, you know, there's an outbreak in that community.
1: Right. I want to talk about the the red-blue divide um, in vaccination. Uh, Now, the amount of Republican voters who remain unvaccinated is shockingly high. It's horrific. Uh, Yeah. And as you've noted, there's a, uh, correspondingly, there's a huge gap in death rates between Democrats and Republicans. And in December, uh, you were pretty, pretty prescient here. You called on conservative leaders like Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump to urge Republicans to take the vaccine. A few weeks later, I don't know if you noticed, but Trump actually called uh, quite forcefully and I thought like pretty convincingly on his supporters to take the vaccine, said it was a great success and that they should be proud of it. The problem is that I don't think that that's working. What did you make of of Trump calling on his supporters to take the vaccine? And do, do you see that as, as something that could be successful in convincing Red America to start taking COVID vaccines?
0: And then Trump doubled down this week, right? He, he right. mocked politicians who was it? he mocked politicians who hadn't gotten their booster or who, who, were,
1: who were being coy about the booster. Like Ron DeSantis said he he initially said that he got the vaccine and then he got asked about getting the booster. And he said, you know, that's private health information and you know was being coy about it and Trump said well just just say you got it like why you know it's like saying it's like being coy about having gotten the flu shot it's sort of an odd thing to 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 not disclose publicly
0: it's also just wrong to call it and i and I, i'll come back to your question so it's just right. wrong to call it private information right it's like it's like saying it's private information if if i had two martinis before i got behind the wheel <laughs> right yeah. like it yes. because if you haven't gotten the vaccine or gotten boosted you are more likely to infect other people and Um, if the risks to vaccinated people were zero, then I'd feel a little bit like, well, okay, you're just putting at risk other people who are voluntarily exposing themselves to vaccine risk. Um, At this point, I really do believe um, Americans have had the opportunity to get vaccinated. I understand that there are barriers, right? Particularly, you know, it's not necessarily easy to get time off of work. I'm not just dismissive of that, but the fact is that um, if people really wanted to get vaccinated at this point, they could have done it. But but the risks to vaccinated people are not zero. And so Ron DeSantis, if he, in fact, has not been boosted or vaccinated, he is putting at more risk, um, 85-year-olds and people who've gotten organ transplants and people who are getting cancer treatment in his community. It's not a private matter. Um, right. I, I do think, look, people respond to leaders of their tribe. I mean, we've seen this. I mean, you, know, you look at some of the polling data on what happened to opinion among black Americans about same sex marriage after Barack Obama changed his opinion and and leaders' views matter. They change people's minds. And so I'm not shocked that that one or two statements by Trump, given the massive amount of misinformation on the right about vaccines, and the footsie that Trump played for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's not he's not a hero here about this. He's just he's just he's very belatedly.
1: Being... <laughs> coming yes. forward. Yeah.
0: But it's still really helpful. It's uh, much more helpful than anything Joe Biden could say to reach unvaccinated Republicans, or anything the New York Times could say to reach right. unvaccinated Republicans. And and not just the New York Times, it's more helpful than anything the Wall Street Journal could say to reach unvaccinated Republicans. And so um so I think it's I do think it's really helpful. And um um it's probably made some small difference on the margins. And and you could also imagine how it would then make it easier for if someone else wants to kind of do that understanding that now they've got protection from trump um i I hope we see more of it Um,
1: right and you know there's also been just looking at right-wing media for a second there's been this sort of annoying trend of criticizing public health experts and journalists for changing their opinions as the information changes Um, right i was dealing with it the other day where um there was a conservative uh, pundit who was complaining that, you know, at the beginning, last, last March, pundits were saying that the vaccines were effective against, uh, vaccines were effective against uh, spread. Right. And now obviously with Omicron, they're less effective against uh, spreading the virus. And so he was saying, "Oh, you know, the, all the pundits were wrong." But of course, like there's a new variant; things have changed. So now people are changing their opinions on things. Right. Um, ha- have you run into that problem in your writing, where you you you've seen criticisms of basically informate new information coming in, and you updating your takes on certain things?
0: That's a good question. I mean, I think I've seen some, but I also view that as fair criticism, right? Like if right. you, even if you were acting on the best in information at the time. If you said something that was either sort of wrong, or in this case not sort of factually wrong in the moment, but basically misleading, like right, it's fair criticism. I mean, when I when I reviewed the three things that that I thought I got. At least somewhat wrong in 2021 that was one of the three you know yeah eric thompson of the atlantic and the ringer has has criticized himself for the exact same reason which is uh, believing that the effectiveness that vaccines initially had at stopping all infections would continue and they didn't delta and omicron led to many many more breakthrough infections um the other two just as an aside that i that i um chided myself for were being a little slow to buy into the evidence of waning immunity. Um, and being uh, not being sufficiently alarmed about the possibility of, of inflation in the economy. But I, I think, so I think those criticisms are fair. The, mm. the thing I would be harsher about is, there is this tendency it's not exclusive to the right um there are versions of it on the left but there's this tendency in basically people aren't willing to take responsibility for their own opinions and i think that's just kind of weak so Mm. for example you hear a lot of people on the right now saying well i'm skeptical of vaccines because kamala harris said that she wouldn't trust donald trump's you know endorsement of a vaccine and it's kind of like come on when did if you were like a diehard conservative when were you following kamala harris's comments so closely that, that you were saying yes, right? And it's like, that is not actually the root of right-wing vaccine skepticism, something that Kamala Harris said. That is, people who are citing that are not willing to take responsibility for their own opinions, which is, they're skeptical of the vaccines, they may be skeptical of all vaccines, and they're kind of looking for a convenient scapegoat, which is, oh, one liberal once said something mildly skeptical about one part of the vaccines, and now I'm gonna claim that that is the root source of, of, of all skepticism. And I think my general attitude is, When people on one side of the political aisle are saying, I have this view because people on the other side made me do it, it, treat it like it's a bunch of little kids, because that's kind of what it's like, right? He made me do it, she made me do it. No, take responsibility for your views. If you're going to be skeptical of the vaccine, it's because you're skeptical of the vaccine, not because some liberal once said something. And and similarly, like if liberals are going to say, well, we have these views just because conservatives did this other bad thing. No, like you have these views because of a reason and explain what the reason is.
1: The amount of times I've heard that Kamala Harris comment oh about the Trump vaccine—I mean, it's so many times. I mean, it was a silly comment for her to make at the time, but I mean, it's just yeah, it, it being it being cited as the reason why there's so much vaccine skepticism is crazy. It's uh, crazy, you know, yeah.
0: And and, uh, and although I don't think it was a perfect comment, I mean, look, Donald Trump did so many anti-science things, both that's him true personally and is in and his administration for her to say I don't have competence in the scientific proclamations of President Trump and his administration right. was not an irrational position to have
1: I think you know when you look at it it was like it's like okay there's an enormous you know there's enormous government agencies behind this it has to get FDA approval and all that but at the time like Trump cut corners and made comments in public that were nuts. And so, yeah, you know, forgive me for being a little bit skeptical about something coming out of his administration. Yeah. Um, uh, overall, do you think the media has done a good job in covering the COVID pandemic and forgive the incredibly broad question? Here. No,
0: no. It's, it's, <laughs> I, I guess I would say I think the media has done a lot of great journalism on the pandemic, I think there's been great data journalism that's helped us understand you know you look think of those charts you check. Um, uh, I think there's been great science journalism explaining to us um, how this virus works, I think there's been great investigative journalism explaining to us how the CDC testing failures happened, for example. And you know that is a highly incomplete list. There's so there's been a lot of really phenomenal data, explanatory, investigative, and beat uh, reporting on the pandemic. Uh, the media's coverage of the pandemic has not been perfect, however, and there have also been, I think, some patterns of problems. And I wrote a newsletter called Bad News Bias based on an academic study that found that American national media was tended to have a real negative bias, more negative than media in other countries. Um, you know, when cases were rising, we would say cases are rising. And when they were falling, we'd say cases are falling, but maybe they'll soon rise or cases are falling, but they're rising in this place. And I do think we in the media should be self-reflective about our bad news bias. I think um, I get where it comes from. We have to be skeptical. We're surrounded by PR people telling us how great this politician or this athlete or this company is. And if we weren't skeptical, we'd just end up as stenographers for press releases. But I think we also should recognize that this skepticism sometimes leads us to go too far. And uh, basically the way I've come to think about it is, our bar for negative news is really low sometimes, and our bar for positive news is really high. And so we'll say things like, um, Omicron may be more severe. Um, uh, which initially was technically true, but pretty misleading from the beginning. Mm. Um, Or we'll report epidemiologists who also sometimes get things wrong, they're human, who say cases are likely to surge when kids go back to school. Well, cases plummeted when kids go back to school. And so I do think we've seen with COVID a kind of bad news bias that ultimately means we're not doing our jobs, which is giving people the most accurate picture of reality that we can.
1: As we wrap up here, I do want to ask you about your your career. You've been at the Times for more than two decades, uh, if I'm if I have my my numbers correct. You do. Uh, you worked for the opinion section. You created the Upshot. Served as Washington bureau chief, and you scooped up a Blitzer Prize uh, as a columnist for the business section along the way. How did you get your start at the New York Times?
0: So as I uh, and I cannot believe I've worked. I can't really believe I've done anything for. 22 for, years yep <laughs> um uh i except being in a relationship with my wife i can i can believe that but other than okay. that i cannot believe that i've worked in a place for for 22 years um uh i as i as i mentioned before i i've basically loved journalism forever i mean if you asked me what i wanted to do when i was a kid i wouldn't have said be a journalist but i think i first would have said, play third base for the Red Sox. And then I would have said, be a baseball announcer. So baseball announcer actually is a journalist, right? Right, So so once I was beyond the fantasy realm of playing for the Red Sox, um, you know, the the only other thing I thought about was being a math teacher, a high school math teacher. I come from a family of teachers and I love math. And so, um, so that interested me as well, but I worked for my high school paper. I worked for my college paper. I loved the feeling of of being uh, essentially having a uh, an excuse to go around and learn stuff, um, and then tell other people about it, uh, and now uh, to be paid to do that, and so um, I did a bunch of newspaper internships. As was um, uh, it's, it's still common, but there was a very set structure of newspaper internships when I was um, when I was getting out of college in the mid '90s. I, I I worked at the New Haven Register unpaid. I worked at the Boston Globe. Um, paid. Actually, I taught math until 3 p.m., so I would have enough money to live, and then I went and worked for the New Haven Register in the late Mm -hmm. afternoons. Uh, Then I got a paid internship at the Boston Globe, and I had a paid internship at the Washington Post, and tried really hard and failed to get hired by the Washington Post, Um, but it was still a great experience. And then I spent um, four weeks at Business Week magazine in New York, where I'd also done an internship, and there was a somewhat well-worn path from Business Week to the New York Times, because Business is one of the only areas where we're the, the little kid on the block mm. relative to the Wall Street Journal and Reuters. And so the, the skills you get at a weekly magazine of trying to look at things a little bit differently or how to follow up when someone else has dominated the news, the Times business section would often hire out of Business Week. And so I was hired in the business section in 1999, and it's the only place I've worked since.
1: My My last question. I think that the Times, and this isn't a particularly controversial take, but the Times right now is the best newspaper in the United States, best newspaper in the world. I'm actually like pretty stunned when I get the Sunday paper by how like great and comprehensive a product it is. And the paper seems to be in a really good place now uh, in terms of that, in terms of the coverage, in terms of subscriptions. But that's a bit of a change uh, from the years before Trump when I think it's safe to say that the paper was was struggling. What do you think, and you I should note that you wrote a report in twenty seventeen about the newsroom where it stands and sort of a blueprint for where the paper should be going in the next couple of years. What do you think turned around the fortunes of the New York Times? and what do you think it's doing right now that's that's successful?
0: There was a Trump bump. Hmm. Um, but it was it was bumps actually a nice description of it. It was not the qualitative change. If you look, and as you just noted, I worked on this project. I spent a lot of time looking at these charts. Um, if you look at the charts of, of our revenue, our subscriptions, you notice Trump, but you actually kind of have to look a little bit hard to see it. Meaning, once you see it, you see it. It's a little change on the charts. But mm-hmm. I think, to answer your question, the, the key moment, and it was an incredibly brave decision. I recognize this person used to be my boss, and I still work for the company run by his family, so you might expect me to praise it, but when Arthur Sulzberger, um, uh, the former publisher, decided that we really were going to set up a paywall, and we really were going to charge people, um, I will tell you, uh, I thought the initial price they set was way too high. My attitude was, set a low price, get people comfortable with the idea of paying. You can always... You know, turn it up over time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, and so, uh, uh, but they decided, you know what? Um, uh, w- our audience will be willing to pay for what we did, and they set um, they set a real initial price, and I think that was the turning point. And um, I think. Um, I think what Steve Jobs did at Apple with getting people comfortable to pay for individual songs and then other things kind of made a difference. Um, But to me, the two key things were the times as it often has invested in journalism, saw the importance of the internet created a great, not perfect, but great digital product. And then basically took the incredibly big risk of, Uh, of charging for it. And that fundamentally changed where we are economically. And there are no guarantees that there will be lots of places that take us on, as you know, we've lost a bunch of people recently to The Atlantic, um, which is a wonderful publication. You know, The Washington Post obviously is a great newspaper. So there are real rivals out there to us, and I assume the biggest rivals are the ones I can't name because we don't yet know who they are, right? And so I'm not saying The Times is set, but The Times is in really good condition. The thing to worry about if you care about democracy, if you care about truth, the thing to worry about is not us, not the national media, it's local media.
1: Right. For sure. Yeah, I think the t- the Times, I mean, you're at what, eight, eight, more than 8 million subscribers, paying subscribers at this point? That sounds I, right. It's, it's yeah, a lot.
0: I mean, yeah. put it this way. there are, I mean, by any measure, there is no golden age of the past for the New York Times. There are more right. journalists working for us right now. There are more people reading us. There are more people paying to read us. Like, this is the golden age for the New York Times.
1: Thanks so much for joining me, David. And uh, thanks so much for your great reporting.
0: Oh, thanks so much. And uh, I'd love to do it again in the future.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and check out coverage of my conversation with David Leonhardt on Mediaite.com.